This is not your mother's middle age. No longer is waking up each day, living the wash, rinse, and repeat cycle acceptable. We have the life lessons, the relationships, the wins, and the losses with which to navigate to our highest self without hesitation and without fear leading the way. We have been there and done that, and so we have so much to offer the world and each other. So join me on this journey speaking to ordinary women doing extraordinary things for new insights, new ideas, new medical breakthroughs, and new life lessons. You will be inspired to find your best life here and now. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire, and this is your Second Wind Podcast. Second Wind Tribe, I am bringing you a really neat lady with a really cool story, a little back story to Heather Burkholt is she's a mother of one. She's been married for 20 years. She lives in Noonan, Georgia. And we actually met on a Zoom forum call thing through Annie Sincorn, who's been on the podcast. And we were on the call together and we just kind of recognized each other and, oh, hey. (laughs) Yeah. And then um, we... Fast forward and Heather, we met again because Heather sells her beautiful artwork at Vicki Sanders business called the hug box. And Vicki has told her story on second wind as well. And we had this scheduled meeting at a restaurant for this call to create meeting of women, sort of like a Bible study, sort of like read a book, which I have never done before really. And I'm like, you know, I love Vicki. I should show up. And I had just gotten back from Utah finding and meeting my (laughs) biological brother turned sister. So I kind of walked in, sat down in this restaurant with these ladies I didn't know and said, oh my gosh, you're not going (laughs) to believe what just happened to me. And they were so kind. And I, I happened to plop right down next to Heather and we realized very quickly we're both Jersey girls. And to my amazement, sitting next to this beautiful woman, I found out she was a retired ballerina. And I was just like, well, and now you're an, there's got, you're an artist. Like there's gotta be a story here. And she's like, oh yes, I have a story. And then Vicky overheard us. And she's like, oh, you have to have her on the podcast. She has the most amazing story with so many layers and facets that I believe will be of service to the tribe of second wind. And so let's get started. Welcome, Heather, to Second Wind Podcast. So much, Wendy. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. So I'm excited. We've been trying to pull this off. The new computer, the sound issues. I'm at my daughter's apartment with her bandwidth. Hopefully that's helping this. Anyway, here we are finally getting this interview in. And I want to talk first about that moment where... Everything was just kind of chaotic for you and things weren't the way you wanted them to be. And everything had shifted so many times. Tell us about that moment where this second wind of yours took place. So we um, had a move in 2016 from Chattanooga, Tennessee, back to Georgia. I say back to Georgia. We had been in Georgia before, then went to Tennessee and kind of joke we live between two states. But in 2016, um, a job brought us back to Noonan, Georgia. And 
took a, took a few months to get settled like most people do. And probably in early April of 2017, I was just in the dining room that was a dining room, standing there um, and looking back in hindsight a little bit, the time in Chattanooga, um, my daughter was homeschooled at the time, and we'll probably get into why in this interview, but um, definitely wasn't something I ever thought I would do, but we'll get into that too. But um, during that time, art was a class that most kids have to take, whether they're in school or homeschooled. So we, we did some of that and I kind of, I really enjoyed it. And so did she, it was a wonderful pastime, but moved forward to Noonan, Georgia. Um, my daughter lost some interest in it, but mine for some reason started to grow. And I was like, okay, I still have this itch. So standing in my dining room um, and I just, my husband builds sometimes. So there was some scrap pieces of wood in the garage. And I just, I remember just kind of having like this flash of this large flower or this idea of like, you know, it kind of be fun to take a really big piece of wood and just do this huge vibrant flower on it. And then I had kind of a mental image of like some stripes. So a little bit nautical, I don't know, you know, and I had to go itch, itch it because (laughs) it just was there. So I went into the garage and I, I got this piece of wood and I, I laid it on the table, took up half the table. I think it was two feet by four feet. And then I was like, okay, but I need some paint. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know if it was that day or the next day. Um, you know, I ventured to Michael's. I really wasn't sure what kind of paint. It's wood. It's not canvas. I didn't really know. I just kind of got the colors I had in my head. I think I even went to Home Depot or Lowe's and it might have even started with the little bitty cans that are rejects. People realize, oh, this isn't going to work. So they're like 50 cents. Actually, I think that's what happened. I bought a navy and like a sage green of reject paint. So a dollar total. Oh, yeah. And I guess I picked out some reds or corals and whatever. Um, next thing, and I finished it. It was this big, vibrant orange flower and this navy, this nautical kind of stripe behind the flower. And I just sat it over on the wall. Like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I don't know. That was fun. That that really, that was fun. And um, so then I had a friend who had been with some, you know, had some things with her children, similar to my daughter, and she wanted to catch up and she asked me, so what are you doing these days? And I said, well, you know, we just moved and settled and blah, blah, blah. And then I said, you know, and I kind of playing with some art. She's like, oh, really? Well, what are you doing? So I took a picture of it and sent it to her. She goes, can I buy that? And I was like, what? No, 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 no. You don't want that. She's like, no, really. I I could do a whole room around that. I love those colors. And I'm about to redo this room. And um, please, can, can you sell that to me? And I was like, well, okay. How do you do that? Aside from the obvious, like, but okay, I got to ship it to you. So then I'm finding myself at UPS getting a shipping quote for this piece of wood, this piece of art that was just a random idea. And I'm like, she really wants this. I attached a price that I thought, okay, well, I didn't even know how much to price this thing, (laughs) but gave her kind of an idea what I thought might be fair um, for time and the size. And then um, had my husband put some hard wire on the back. I'm like, she's got to be able to hang it. Didn't even know what to do about that. So anyway, that, that was the very first kind of aha I guess, moment and literal beginning of um, this whole endeavor that, and then I guess when I 
shipped it to her and it is all done. I was like, I still have an itch. (laughs) So I had a little idea come to me and I went back in the garage and got another piece of wood. And this one was a totally different size. I would just pick up scraps that he had laying in there. And I realized pretty quickly though, I loved painting on the wood. So that has stuck. And and it just kind of just no technical intention, uh, no uh, deliberate path. Um, I just knew I felt this spark. I had these ideas coming and there was such a joy and a peace of creating that I think was what just continued to propel me. Yes. And, and you needed that. And that's, and that's what yeah. we're going to dive into now because right. now um, you sell your art. I see it all over your, your designs are very unique to you. Thank you. And I'm like, oh, there she is again. Oh, there's Heather again. Like, there's your stuff. It's so neat. And it's even more cool for me. I feel very honored because I know the story behind the flowers. So let's go back. Let's go back. Who is Heather? And and give us how you got to that moment in your dining room. Um, Heather is, uh, gosh. I, I think sometimes even in our mid 40s, we're still asking ourselves those questions, <laughs> but obviously creativity is my lifeline, you know, and from the time I was little, I, I now that I, you know, all of us can look back and you kind of see some of those, I, I refer a lot to stepping stones mm-hmm. that are like life that you look back and you're like, oh, wow. Uh, okay. Like I loved flowers ever since I was tiny. And I tried to join a flower garden club that went in elementary school. And I was always picking those first daffodils that bloomed. They didn't have, have a chance to live. I'd go out there and cut them and put them in a vase. I mean, I just <laughs> always loved, loved, loved flowers. And, um, and, and I guess then, then there was a lot of uh, creativity through dance. Um, I started ballet at three. So I just loved dance, music, all things creative, you know, go out on my swing as a kid. I'm staring up at the clouds, looking at the flowers and butterflies. I mean, I'm that person. So, um, school, Heather, you make it sound very, um, like a normal childhood, but it wasn't. No. Yeah. It, it definitely, I think there were always elements that I found my happy, but when I look back, like I just said, that happy was usually through creativity. And then of course, perspective. Right. Because first, first y'all lived in Atlanta where I was born, right? You and, um, you're one of two, two. Okay. One of two and just a brother. Okay. And then, um, your father kind of threw a curveball at y'all because life was pretty good in Atlanta. Yes. What happened? He, um, my dad was, uh, ex-military Vietnam helicopter pilot. And we found out years, years, years later that he, this is his story a little bit, but it's woven into what happened. Um, he just like probably many, he, he just such a volatile time in 67 and his job was so dangerous flying and doing what he did. Many, many friends passed away during that time, you know, this time of war is challenging. And he just apparently made a promise to God, (laughs) Lord, get me out, just get me home. I'll do whatever it is in this life you want me to do. And my, you know, and and we all have different perspectives on faith and and things like that and different faiths, but in my dad's faith and and what he felt 
God was speaking to him when he got out of Vietnam, he got home, you know, God had kept his promise, but my dad kind of didn't keep his. So for about eight Mm -hmm. to 10 years, you know, got into business. He was doing very well working with Haynes and he was a Haynes manager for like the whole Southeast, you know, Birmingham, Atlanta. That's why we were in Atlanta. And, um, somewhere, I guess I was four. My brother was eight. He just that nudging his call in his life rose up and wouldn't go away. And he said, I I need to keep my promise. So my dad knew in his life and felt I'm being called into ministry. So he got accepted Mm. to seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, for us, that meant we had graduate housing, which was a little apartment, two bedrooms, two bathrooms, but we had to give up our dog. We had give up our beautiful home, which was modest, but we were, you know, this is as a children, this is all we knew the swing set, you know, all the, uh, we had to take only what we could. We couldn't take all our furniture. Right. And basically our whole life shifted and I was now sharing bunk beds, like with my brother and my brother was four years older. I can't say we always got along. (laughs) Right. You know, one bathroom and, and that's all fine. Like, that's it's totally was functional. It's just all new. And then we were in Tulsa, Oklahoma for two years. Um, but he finished at Princeton Seminary. So then there was another move two years later. Um, I was now six, my brother was 10, to right outside Princeton, New Jersey, where we did then live for nine years. And then there were a few more moves because in the ministry, like like military, you're moved a lot. So and you went from like basic middle, middle class, life is good, upper middle class to yeah. being in line for the free lunch at school. I was. So I remember being in first, second, I think at least the first couple of years, um, I was in the free lunch line at school that they had to separate us just for organization reasons. And my mom actually never knew that until like five years ago. She goes, what do you mean you were in a, oh, no. what do you mean you were in a separate line? Like where everyone knew that, you know, and exactly. I was like, well, mom. Yeah. Like, I guess I didn't go home and talk about stuff. I didn't think about it, but so at least for a year or two, there were free lunches at school. And I remember not being able to get ice cream on Fridays. All the kids got ice cream, but oh, you have to bring your extra 50 cents or whatever. Yeah. Um, we just didn't have it. And, um, that, you know, that's just, I didn't complain. I just remember thinking this is the way it is. And I remember then a lot of churches will have what's called like a rummage sale, you know, where, so my mom, was like, okay, we get first pick, you know, they were honoring my dad as the pastor. So my new clothes first few years were always from the rummage sale. And I look back, I'm like, I don't know how my parents did that, but we were provided for, we were healthy. We, you know, we had what we technically needed. And then as I I still did ballet, um, I do remember the ballet school was just so gracious. And I think I was on scholarship for nine years. Wow. Princeton, New Jersey were so expensive and my parents just could not. So there were blessings in the mist. Um, There was a way where there seemed to be no way and things have a way truly of working out. I think if you're just steadfast, there was a way when there should have been a way. And I think a lot of it comes with uh, persistence. Um, For me, it was, I, you know, it was a strong faith. Um, And I did have parents that believed in my dreams. They were very supportive and they could tell at the time I loved dance and they knew that was good for me. And I loved the creativity. So they always did what they could to keep me in that. 
Well, let's get going into that whole ballerina thing. Oh, the ballerina thing. Let's get into that because it's so wild to me. You're on your toes for God's sake. I mean, it's just not natural. (laughs) For it now. (laughs) Yeah. We were talking about that. Yeah. Um, so you go through school, where does, where does ballet fit into your world? How does that So ballet from the time, like I said, little, uh, maybe that early years was once a week, twice a week. But by the time I was 13, um, there was a ballet class every day and on Sundays, seven days a week. They called it junior company. And it really was that pivotal point, 13, 14, where even though that's so young, if you're going to try to go for a professional career in ballet, this is the time you need to really get strict about it, disciplined and decide how much training do you want to put into this? Um, right. It's like for, poop or get off the pot. Right. It was definitely, <laughs> um, it was definitely that. And, um, I basically, uh, I was not getting off the pot so. <laughs> <laughs> there as long as I could. Um, and I knew, I knew it's three, I knew it's three years old. I wanted to be a ballet dancer, which is crazy, but I did. So at 13, I made that commitment. Um, we had another move when I was 15. So I was going into sophomore year of high school, which is another, I'd been with all these kids in elementary school for nine years. And all of a sudden my dad was assigned to a new church in mm. South. And so we moved again. Uh, and those ballet classes, I had to find a new school. Um, those ballet classes then were in downtown Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Oh, so I was, wow. I mean, until I got my license, my parents were taking me over the Walt Whitman bridge. Um, well, seven days a week. And then summer workshops were six weeks. So I had no summers. There were summer wow. workshops. By That's the time, intense. yeah, by the time I was a senior, so 17 and then turning 18, my senior year, I had 11 ballet classes a week. I had the work school program. So I went to school for two hours, went to downtown Philly for two hours, went back to school for two hours, went home for two hours, went back to Philly at night and then had Saturday classes as well. In preparation oh my to them. gosh, it was nuts. <laughs> it's nuts for you, but it, as a parent, can you imagine? They, well, they gave me a car, not because they were the kind of parents, like, you know, every family's different to each their own, but it wasn't like they were handing me a car for just, you know, oh, here's the car. It was like, no, we're exhausted. We have responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. We cannot take you over the Walt Whitman bridge to Philly twice a day and Saturdays, they're trying to run a church. And there were other family things going on that my mom was highly involved in. And they were like, here's the keys. You're, you're a good kid. We trust you get yourself to ballet class. Yeah. And, but you know, that prepared me for driving into downtown Atlanta, you yeah. know, when we get that, that chapter back yeah. to it. And, um, so, you know, again, it was all preparation for the next things ahead, but it was definitely intense, you know, um, and I think I shared with you a moment before that then when that ended, well, we have to get to Atlanta before it ended, but yeah, we do. Cause that was insane. Yeah. yeah that was crazy too. So keep going. Cause, cause uh, you're, you're doing uh, these classes and then you want to go professional. I want to, I knew that I wanted to be a professional dancer. And so when I was 15, when we moved the, the next move to South Jersey, I was going into being a sophomore. Some ballet magazine or something I stumbled across. I was turning the pages and I saw there was an advertisement for the Atlanta Ballet. Now I have to stop you there because yeah. I just want you to know so many second wind stories. 
there are, they've got this vision and then they just happen to be looking at a magazine right. or just happen this, this, this page just shows up and mm-hmm. you are, it happened to you too. And so it makes you wonder if it was placed in your hands kind of, I, I don't know. Oh, I, I don't know. I firmly believe in that. I do. Um, and yeah, it's, it's true that that's what I stumbled on. There was an ad, uh, for the Atlanta ballet company. And I was like, no way. You know, I was like, there's, there's a professional company in Atlanta, you know, cause that's where I was born. And that's where, you know, so I cut it out and I put it on a bulletin board for three years. Oh, wow. You know, every time I'm in and out of my room as a teenager, you know, I, I, I glance at it and hope and, um, just continue training and, um, working really, really hard. And then I guess when I was my senior year and it was, I hadn't graduated yet, but the audition was April, this is 1992. And my parents also still being pastors there just wasn't a surplus of finances. So they said I could audition for two companies. That's all they had money for as far as traveling. Um, so we knew Atlanta was one of them. I did audition for Princeton Ballet because I lived in Princeton for nine years. I was, that's where I trained their ballet school. So I thought, mm-hmm. well, that's not far from home, you know? So that one didn't work out and that left Atlanta. And usually your goal as a dancer is to audition as at least like six or eight, 10 companies, hoping mm-hmm. one will work out. So I only had two and um, I made it to the last audition and I went back to New Jersey because I had to finish high school. And they said to us, if you made the company, you will get a phone call. If you did not make the company, we will reach out to you through a letter. Right. So I graduated in June. And I remember like late June, early July, I still didn't have a phone call or a letter. And so I was kind of like, well, this, that's weird. Kind of feeling like I didn't make it. Um, but I just did. So I, I called actually. And I, I remember getting a receptionist. She's like, oh, sweetheart, if you, if you were in the company, they, they would have called you. So if you didn't get a phone call, you know, um, I'm so sorry. And I said, well, I didn't get a letter either. She's like, well, then you you should have, but, um, it basically the tone was through her. I didn't make it. So I just remember having that moment, just crashing, like, what am I going to do with my life? And just because you made yourself your own vision board, like this was, I did you know, a lot of dancers in the arts or gymnasts, a lot of things like that college, you know, it's gosh, college is a focus, but really you work so hard for something like this, that college was to be a dancer professionally. Your goal really is to get in a company as young as possible. So Mm -hmm. you have a long career. You're, you know, by the time you are my age, (laughs) your career's over. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, um, thinking and accepting what she said, I didn't make it. And I knew I wasn't going to go back down to Philadelphia. I, I just was like, what am I going to do with my life? What, what am I going to do? I have no idea. This was no idea. that disappointment of, I didn't make it. Now what I literally, and my parents said, well, you stay home if you graduate and go to community college. And I remember I had an aunt who called and said, look, if you want to come back to Atlanta and live down here, um, and look at community college or take ballet lessons, continue and audition next year, try again. And I remember feeling like I'm supposed to go to Atlanta, but I have nothing waiting on me. All I knew that I felt I just was supposed to go. And my parents were, I don't know how they did this. Cause now that my daughter's 
just turned 18. I'm like, I don't know how my parents did this, but they're like, we'll support you if you want to go, but you don't have to go. Like they didn't want to say there's nothing waiting for you. Yeah, you're not getting kicked out of your house. Yeah. Right. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a job. I didn't, the ballet didn't work out. I, I didn't have any friends down there. There's literally nothing waiting for me, but an offer from my aunt and uncle to just, so I remember feeling like I'm supposed to go. I don't know why, but I know that I know that I'm supposed to go. And that's all I have. So we lined up, we filled up garbage bags. I don't even think I had luggage. I don't know. Like I got gar- you know, garbage bags and lined them up in the hallway and we're doing this. And the weekend was supposed to be July 26th or something that we were going to move down there. So my mom and I go shopping one last time as mother daughter. Let's go to the mall one more time. And my dad said, Hey, stop by the office real quick. And I said, okay. So I walk in there and my dad goes, well, I just want to let you know that when you get to Atlanta, you're going to have a paycheck. And I remember, what? yeah, I remember like, dad, what are you talking about? Dad? He's yeah. <laughs> like, no, I just spoke to the artistic director of Atlanta ballet. And there was a, a mess up. He remembers you were selected to be in the company. Somehow the paperwork or the phone call, the communication just got lost. You are supposed to be in ballet class with Atlanta Ballet Company August 3rd. Because this is 1992 still, right? Yeah. And yeah. computers are still not anywhere not, no. like they are now. Like that, no. it's very easy to see how you could miss a call, miss right. a letter. Or, yeah. Or, you know, some paper misplaced and, you know, mm-hmm. whether it, it was just nuts. And I remember thinking when I got down to Atlanta, I had to be in ballet class, paid to be in ballet class three days later, had I not listened to that internal voice. So cool. You're supposed to go. (laughs) That's that internal voice. That's what, um, yeah, I really think that's the, that's the ticket for all of us is listening. Yeah. Listening. Yeah. And you listened, you listened each time, each and every time. So keep going, keep going. Cause it's good. Oh yeah. So that's, that's, that. And, um, I danced with them and we, they da- performed at the Atlanta civic center at the time. And so, uh, I danced with them for 92 and then 93 and I'm pushing 20 in 1993 that you were doing that cracker at the Atlanta civic center. And pushing um, 20. I'm, I'm, does that mean that's old for a ballerina? No, it just meant that's the age I was when this chapter was going to end for me. Oh, um, okay. I your forties. You're, you're either on your last leg, no pun intended, or you're, you're <laughs> to resign and go into teaching. I mean, the body, it is so strenuous. Um, it, it's just not going to keep going until your fifties and sixties in the dance world. And that's right. why a lot of dance, you know, give up, not, you know, marriage or having children. There's, it's different for everybody, but, um, I was, I was pushing 20 and I remember being in the wings and backstage just feeling like this is going to be my last nutcracker. Mm. I I really feel like this chapter is closing. Um, things were just still really challenging. And I just, I think what, cause somebody had asked my parents, well, I had to call my parents be like, you're going to be okay with this. Like you put money later in my high school years, we had some more finances. They, they put money into my training. And I was like, you guys have driven me to every ballet class until I got, old. you know, like, you know, are you okay? I just need to have your blessing almost in a way. If, if I let this go, that you guys won't be disappointed in me. And yeah, they, they put were in so the great. effort and you don't want to let them down. Yeah. yeah. Very and, real. And they were very wise. They said, Heather, you did do it. You did make it. You went to the top. You, 
you finished your goal and your dream came true, if you're choosing that you're ready to let this go, that's ultimately up to you, which I thought was very wise of them. Mm -hmm. Well, I, and they did, they said, well, why, what is it? I said, because I've lost my joy in it. The grueling day in, day out and, and trying to constantly attain perfection and your body has to be perfect. You know, um, even though obviously I had reached a point where I made it into professional company, but that's not without sweat, tears and just really hard challenges all along the way. And I think I realized I want to know what life is like outside the ballet studio. Right. Real quick. So, so what yeah. would a typical day for you as a ballerina? We didn't talk about this, but I'm really curious because you hear the stories that they like the gymnast you have to be this thin, you have to weigh in, you have to not eat things you want to eat. You have to get a certain amount of sleep. You don't get to go out and have fun. You can't have popcorn at a movie. Like, right. (laughs) Just what did that look like for you? A day in the life? I think I handled all that. I was naturally thin. I mean, I was more muscular build. I wasn't like a tall waif, you know, like ballerina. Um, And so I knew there were certain companies that, I mean, there are certain companies that this is what they want. And if you're not built that way, you're not even going to get in. Then there's other companies that are just more, they want a more mixed look. You know, you have, you learn in that, in that genre, you learn what the ballet world, what, in which state or company who wants what. So I was really always felt confident and I always felt great and self-assured until the Philadelphia training. And that was because the training was a couple notches. Uh, I, I don't want to say like better. It was just more intense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was the training that prepared me for auditioning. It really refined my technique. I had teachers that were just really great, very passionate, but very strict. And mm-hmm. they were like, I don't care if you're in a bad mood, you get up there and you take ballet class, go get your mm-hmm. leotard on get up in class. One of them was Russian and she was just amazing. And, you know, going through that and not being built super, super, super long legs or perfect turnout. You know, I had to work on that probably two or three times harder than a girl that was just naturally built that way. Mm -hmm. And they were more critical. So I think though, during that time, ages 15 to 18 is when some of those negative voices started hitting. And they would just say things like, well, you're really pretty. That will help. But, you know, this is too big. This is too short. This isn't. So if you, and they said this to me and I will never forget it. They said, if you walk into New York city for an audition, they'll take one look at your body and you'll be cut beat before you ever dance. Ouch. And then seeing your craft based on your body, just the way I was built or not built. And they said that to me um, in one of my evaluations. And I said, okay, um, and then he came, that's when he came back. Saying, but you're pretty. I'm like, oh, well, thank you. You are Thanks. too. <laughs> I think I said that to the artistic director. I'm like, oh, well, you're pretty too. And, uh, oh and God. I remember, um, senior year, I had lost a lot of weight, a little bit intentional, but then some of it, it just fell off. I think the 11 classes a week, I think at my smallest, um, I was 108 and I, I probably mm, looked a little, you're so little, tall too. Explain how bit. tall you are. Um, five, four. And so, but I am more of a muscular build, but even then like 108, um, being muscular build and larger boned, that's, 
you know, and I remember everyone else in my life was like, Heather, are you well? Are you well? And I remember the artistic director, I walked in and he's like, oh, you look so nice and thin. You've never looked better. Mm-hmm. And when you out in, in the dance world and you think about that, it, and this is all you want, mm-hmm. this is all you want in your life. Um, it's, it goes deep. Um, and so I think I just continued working. I pulled on my faith a lot. Um, I worked and worked. That Russian teacher worked with me a lot. She was amazing. She was the positive voice that balanced. And, and she actually taught Natalie Portman ballet oh, for wow. the movie Black Swan. So, I mean, she was an amazing teacher that I felt so blessed to have in my life. But yeah, all that full circle, you know, I think in Atlanta, ballet in 1993, I just realized, you know what, there is a life outside of the ballet room. Mm-hmm. And I really experienced that fully. And I think I'm ready to let this go and just go eat cheesecake. And <laughs> <laughs> say, I, I need that cheesecake. I just want cheesecake. <laughs> oh my gosh. So that's how that, you know, that ended. Um, and other things began. Right. Okay. So then you, you went to work at a, um, temp agency and you started doing the receptionist thing and then you landed a nanny job. Oh, because I didn't want to go back to New Jersey, but I had not done college and I was not doing ballet. So again, it was another period of self-discovery. Like, what am I going to do with my life? So I knew what I wanted and I knew what I didn't want. So, um, without dance. Yeah. Let's, let's figure out what I'm going to do now. And that, so through a temp agency and then a receptionist job for a year, I met someone and I always, I always loved children. And so I was presented with the opportunity to be a nanny. I was like, you know, when I thought about it to be paid, um, and I was offered more than I was making at the receptionist job, That's funny. Like, yeah. to be paid more money to travel and to be hopefully a positive influence on some little children and and to be a part of their day. I just was really, and to be outside, you know, I just things. So, um, I accepted that. And that was one family that was in Buckhead in Atlanta, Georgia. Then I took another nanny job, uh, for a family in Alpharetta for three and a half years. So for five years total, I did that and learned a lot through the second job when that little boy went into kindergarten, elementary school every day, the, the mother was like, well, I don't want to let you go. Cause when he gets home, I need you, but I don't know what to do with you all day. Like, right, cause I'm paying pay. you. Yeah. Thank you. She happened to be a furniture rep for a high-end furniture company. She's like, how do you feel about going to all my accounts in Atlanta and doing the inventory of all the fabrics? And every six months they would be discontinued. So there was a scanner So I went to all these kind of high-end design places, but I would hear designers talking and I would walk in these rooms and showrooms and see like how furniture and things were merchandised. So looking back, I see a stepping stone being laid for something later. Um, And during the time, it was a, a means to keep me on with the family, but I was learning about fabrics and different grades of fabrics and what fabrics were called, you know, a chenille silk or whatever. It was just and learning um, some design elements in merchandising. And so a few years after doing that, there was a company in Atlanta that had two stores and it was called Yves Delorme and they sold high-end French linens. And this store manager opportunity came about. 
And I was ready at that time to let go of being a nanny because I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to want children. (laughs) If I keep doing this, yeah. Potty train, I've already, you know, taken bottles in the middle of the night. Like I just was ready. I think I was about 25 and I was ready for, wow, this sounds exciting. And so that job was sales. That job was merchandising a store um, with colors and uh, we we got to, as managers, we got to go to Paris and see the showrooms, see how this was made. And then we went to New York City to those showrooms to be taught how to merchandise. And so there were, again, stepping stones about color combinations and how to merchandise and things like that, that uh, I think come into play now. Wow. But, and yeah. And then you, um, and somewhere in that, is that when you met your husband somewhere in that I, process? I, Yes, I met him when I was leaving the first nanny job, and this is in 1996. And I found a roommate, and we moved into an apartment complex in an area called Smyrna Vinings, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And he was the boy next door. He was and the boy he had next door. A, and he had a roommate, and he had just graduated a couple of years from Georgia Southern, so he was working a job and. You know, um, typical story kind of a, like, he was nice, but I was kind of dating somebody else. Like, he's nice. You know, he's not, nah, you know, but we just, I think we were able to just talk about anything. And I felt like I'd known him my whole life. And we oh, were wow. quickly close friends. And after about a couple months, we dated. And then we were like, but we're going to date other people, right? Oh, yeah. No, no pressure. Yeah. Well, that lasted two weeks. Oh, <laughs> no. Then- and then we, um, so that was 96. We got married in 2000. Yeah. Yeah. And we've been now 20 years, almost 21 years. And you, so tell a little bit about that because you, you had, you gave up your job. Oh, you went, we got, point, when you got married. Well, I was still working at the Eve DeLorme retail store. Okay. And we were married like during that that job was engagement and then marriage. And so we were living in Kennesaw, Georgia at the time. Mm-hmm. And he, um, well, we found out in 2002 that we were going to have a baby. Right. So then he also was interviewing with a new company. He had been working for Home Depot corporate for like seven years. And so he just this new opportunity that was better and it seemed really timely because I had hoped to be home for those first few years as a mom. I just really, mm-hmm. after being a nanny, I, I learned a lot and I just, that's just something I had hoped for. And so this new job, if he got it, might make that happen. And so right. he did. And then we moved to Knoxville, Tennessee. And um, our daughter was born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, didn't know anybody. <laughs> first right. baby. My job. So it's definitely um, very, some big adjustments there. But right. uh, yeah. Keep it going. Cause it wasn't, it wasn't um, as easy as just having a baby and a husband. No. And of course, I think when you find out you're going to have a baby, everyone hopes. I mean, I think we all say, oh, I just, I don't care if it's boy or girl. I just wanted the baby to be healthy. And so my prayers, I had three things I prayed for, should have prayed for more, but I prayed for a child that would sleep. <laughs> Because I already knew I was somebody, I need a lot of sleep. <laughs> so it's like, please let this baby sleep. And then I prayed for a child of peace and a child of health. And he granted a child that slept. <laughs> and the rest, the rest has been a little rocky. 
And when our daughter, Emma, was three, she kind of, we noticed, uh, she'd been a sickly baby, but that was hard to tell because a lot of babies, see, when you start right, going out. they get allergies and whatever. Olds, you know, their little immune systems are trying to be built up and that's kind of typical. But at three, things just seemed a little different. And we knew there was something else going on. And she just, re- we realized, well, we didn't really realize till few years later, there was an immune, immune issue, but this had some neurological components and her behaviors were different. And we just were trying to figure out what was going on. And we were being checked for epilepsy and that was negative. And then this, but there was abnormal seizure spiking on an EEG, but things were just, we kept hearing she's an enigma. We really don't know. Hmm. Um, So fast forward to well, we had a job loss and we had to move again back to Georgia. That was, <laughs> and it was all, Yeah, I was, you know, he, he was home an hour and a half. It's when in 2008, a lot of the, you know, the building industry stopped and he's always been in logistics. So that evolved him. And I think half his company was let go. Um, but we came yeah, back. He had just gotten a raise. Yeah. He just gotten a raise and he was doing, he was doing great. And I think he was one of the first to, be let go. I think he was higher paid than some. And so mm-hmm. when you're trying to make those budgets meet as a company, you're going to start. It just makes sense. You're, you're right. going to start. Um, so she had been sick prior to that job loss, but we still, it was still very vague. Um, we moved back to Georgia in 08 and she did okay, but we were still, we still knew we had to be cautious. We somehow miraculously, even in the job loss, um, things just worked out at the last minute. It was amazing. Sold the house in Knoxville after 11 months. So we didn't think we were, but we were building a house in Sonoy. They took a risk on us and said, well, if, if it falls through, we'll sell it as a pre-built. So we were kind of like, we had nothing to lose. You know, we were like, okay. Um, but we closed on the house in Knoxville one month before we were moving in the new one. So it all worked out. But when we got into the new house, we, we rested. We felt so blessed and so grateful. We took a breath and then the bottom dropped out for our daughter. And we, we had done kindergarten, but she kept getting sicker and more neurological. And we then dug deeper with some lab works and realized we found Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And, and that affected her autoimmune. And then other infections were surfacing. And basically, I remember when we found an immunologist um, who actually was in Connecticut, seemed a little bizarre, but he was a preferred provider in our network. And so, and he was trying to find doctors down here that understood Lyme. It was extremely challenging. There's a lot of denial and without trying to get political on a podcast about, um, it was in more, not only just acknowledging Lyme. Um, but trying to find somebody in Georgia who knew about it, who could treat it, but also with a pediatric child. So we found two doctors in Connecticut and we had a Lyme specialist and then another immunologist specialist who, so through a lot of labs and a lot of infections showing up, I remember being presented with, excuse me. Yeah. She's too sick to go to school. Hmm. I think you're going to have to keep her home. And I remember always saying, I will never homeschool. (laughs) I just always was like, Oh no, 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 that's not for me. I'm the mom. Like he's going to put my kid on the bus and 
you know, because um, I never felt like I was teacher material, you know, and mm-hmm. I or I was like, homeschool? What, what do you mean? He, he just said, yeah. well, your daughter's immune system is so weak that we really need to start doing infusions. And at the time, because those infusion orders had to be ordered by the doctor, we had to travel to the doctor um, for gosh, every four weeks for two years. We yeah, were tra- you were traveling to Connecticut, right? To Connecticut every four weeks. So there were like five hotel stays each week, um, 40 hours of driving in a week. We either um, we exhausted our car or we were flying. So medical debt, you know, debt's just piling up. Um, but she would have these infusions um, for autoimmune support as we were also battling other infections in Lyme and yeah, for two years uh, and just trying to get things stabilized. It was really hard. And then homeschooling because it just wasn't, we had one year where we tried to do like second grade, but she had to be pulled out nine months later. And this is not, this is not a all expense paid. Let's go get (laughs) our kid healthy. Or do no, for you? No, this is um, this is everything on every level. Mm-hmm. Like our life was flipped. Um, this wasn't what we thought parenting was going to be like. And I and and I know there's so many parents um, these days. You know, and we met so many parents um, going through such challenging things. Um, it just really shifted perspective of. You know, and I think we went through every emotion. We went through anger. We went through frustration. We went through why. We went through mm-hmm. okay, do this. Okay, then then to well, what's the positive in the day? And I had a friend who had a daughter of similar issues, and we every time we call, we'd say, "What's your silver lining today?" Oh wow, mm-hmm. what is it? There's got to be one. There's got to be one. And it might have just been that I could take my daughter out to get ice cream, which for a lot of parents, that's just something you do. You all do the anyway, time. right? But for us that was a good day. If wow. she had a day where she didn't cry a lot or she just wasn't not feeling that. And she had a friend over to play in the backyard. That was a great that was day. A we just day. Had, yeah. had to reset our bar. Right. So I, I think when COVID hit, um, she, she made the comment cause she's now a teenager and she's like, what's the big deal, mom. Right. <laughs> like that was her life. Yeah. That was her. Um, even until probably, you know, three years ago, which if you coincide with the timing of the art, you start seeing how that. Yeah. Began. So let's, let's talk about yeah. that. I mean, you were challenged, your husband lost his job. We do need to mention real quickly that your aunt also, this aunt that said, come live with me in Atlanta now yeah, yeah. also, also reached out to you at a time of need and said, come live in my, in my condo. house, in a condo in Serenby for free till you guys get it. You said you, you were down to your last $400. I'm, we moved back to Atlanta. They had given my husband a severance and what, and why really I, I have to call it a miracle because he was one of the first to be let go. They gave him a severance, mm-hmm. but two weeks after that, those that were being let go, didn't get any. Ugh. So you look back again and see how there was still a blessing. There was still a provision in spite of feeling like, and we lost our health insurance. So we only took out 60 day policies on Emma. So we went four months without health insurance, Eric and I, uh-huh. and we, Aaron B. Um, so he could maybe reconnect and network. 
we always loved Atlanta. So here we are back to Atlanta. <laughs> and um, yeah, that it was amazing. She just is a very sp- special person in my life. I mean, just because of who she is in her nature, but also she just such a huge heart. And so we did that and that was really crazy. And we got down to, cause he was trying and trying for those six to nine months to get a job. And we got down to $300 that included our checking and our savings. Oh my God. That was it. And we still had to pay the next month's mortgage on a house in Knoxville. And we were just like, well, okay, we're throwing it up to the big guy. You got this God, here you go. We just like <laughs> threw it up and he got a job like that week. And yeah, I- so the paycheck came two weeks later and we were able to pay the mortgage the next month. And, and, and I've always joked in my faith, God is never early. He's, he's really, truly never going to be early, but he's never going to be late. And he'll, he's going to come through right on time. But boy, you're going to sweat sometimes. And I think that's just the faith walk. But oh, the um, faith walk. Ooh, I like yeah. that. I like how you it, said that. It is a faith walk um, of believing in what you cannot see, but that doesn't mean it's not there or that it's not coming. So he got that job, and then we moved into the new house in Sonoy. And like I was saying, okay, we took a breath. We're like, whew, okay, what a year job. <laughs> and then, like I said, the bottom fell out with our daughter, and like, okay, we're not done. Okay. We're just now, we're actually just getting going. (laughs) And um, yeah, so um, believe it or not, after two and a half years of traveling to Connecticut every four weeks, um, which we don't know, we look back, how do we do that? But we did. Right. Got another job um, that took us, lo and behold, back to Tennessee. So we went to Chattanooga, Tennessee, 2013, and we lived there to 2016. her health improved neurologically in some ways, um, but her autoimmune, her white blood count in um, neutrophils, those are your germ fighters for your immune system. They were so low that at one point she was in seclusion mode. Oh my gosh. And um, to the point where that particular season, she was about 10. The doctor's like, I don't know if she can go trick-or-treating. Like Aww. nobody comes in. Nobody. So I never, ever took my daughter to target. We maybe went to one movie theater a year. I remember having to time it to when it'd be the first opening. Um, like if, if it had the first showing at 11, I would pick a school day. So all the kids would not be there. And maybe there was like six, I'd have to Clorox <laughs> the seat, bring a towel. You know, and some people would probably be like, okay, a little over the top, but unfortunately, no. no. And, and I would hear comments like that through the years. Like, you know, you, you learn to just let some things roll, give grace. People can't even imagine what no. it's like. It's not their fault. They don't understand the complexities. And this is what we're going to do. We have to. But she never went to Target with me until she was maybe 13 or 14. Oh because, um, and so my husband and I would go to church, but we'd rotate Sundays. Um, there was one church that we could take her and they, they assigned an adult to be with her in a room by just the two of them. So she could at least, and she would do painting or they would do fun things. So it was, it it was very isolating. Chattanooga was probably the most isolating because we stopped traveling, which physically was a blessing, like the exhaustion. But at least when we traveled, we did meet other families and you had at least some connectivity 
with others um, in Chattanooga that stopped. And it was a very lonely time. How lonely? Um, yeah. How lonely? Well, all our family was in Atlanta. And um, I remember we had Thanksgiving two years in a row, just the three of us. Um, we couldn't go anywhere because of her immune system. And so it was definitely, and, and my husband at the time, that job, and he was on a nine month project where he was gone three to four days a week. Mm-hmm. So it was solely Emma and I. And which, you know, like people in COVID, that's so hard emotionally, mentally, physically. And I, I, a lot of times it felt like a solo parent. And my husband was amazing when he was there. He was on, he would play with her. And I would only do grocery shopping on Saturdays because I couldn't take her Monday through Friday. Right. Lots of logistics within our family of having to do things to just not expose her to germs. So that's when I say when COVID hit, we were like, well, <laughs> we were putting up tents in the living room, you know, back in 2012. Right. You were well rehearsed. So that's kind of, so pick it up for your art because that's that's when you guys started painting together. Yeah. But that you weren't painting your flowers then. I was doing a couple on like canvas. Like I remember going out, we had these really pretty irises and again, anywhere we went a walk or anything, if there was a flower, I was going to take a picture of it. So I knew that I always, always love flowers. So we just dabbled and I would, I would try a few on like canvas. And the reason we just did a lot of art was some of the neurological aspects of her health would come back. And this involved a lot of jerking, a lot of physical, um, she just couldn't be still kind of like ticks, you know? Um, and, and she had some other things that we really just needed to, it's almost like it was just therapeutic. So she did some piano and then we did art because we needed art as a homeschool class. Anyway, it was still homeschooling. Are we homeschooled for eight years? And she could put that hand, that motion into art with the brush strokes. Oh yeah. 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 So we would sit there and I'm letting her kind of get those feelings, those jitters, whatever ticks, like putting it into something where she's creating, you know, something positive. Let's put this into something positive. Let's, let's create. And then I, the, the creativity, and there was a lot of frustration. She's 10, 11, you know, and so we're stuck together every day. We're mother, daughter. And a lot of times her door would slam and I'd go slam mine. <laughs> we didn't do this perfectly. This, this was really hard. and so. She said to me, mom, do you realize when we do art, we don't argue? Oh my gosh. It got silent and we were smiling. And so we, I would let her do it for two hours. And if there were things all over the floor and glitter, I was like, it doesn't matter because she's creating and we're doing something different. It's taking up a chunk in our day. This is good. And then when we moved back to Georgia again, um, in 2016, then fast forward to 2017, my daughter lost interest in art. Right. And mine. mine Well, you said you got a download like in the middle of the night. I I, sometimes um, in the, and it still happens, but I remember like that jumpstart, like I had a sketchbook by my bed and I would close my eyes about to go to sleep and I would just see a picture done. I, I would just see it done. And sometimes it would just be the design. Sometimes it would be the colors. And I literally would have to turn the light back on, sketch it in the sketchbook and then write in like codes where the colors were that I saw. Oh, wow. And even get to the drawing for six months or the, the painting, then I would still have the reference. And I still, I still have like, you know, tons of sketches and drawings. Oh that, my gosh. Yeah, you do. You know, that's um, amazing. 
Yeah. I, I, I think that was your word too. Download. Download. You get a download because it, it, it comes out of nowhere. It's not like you're saying, hmm, let me think about my art now. No. It doesn't happen like that. It pops into yeah. your head. And that's what you have. And that's the whole point of taking notice of those things. Because those things, I mean, it just seems like they're coming from somewhere else. And I've always felt that this, you know, so many people, I think it took me a whole year or two to call myself an artist. Right. Um, When I first festival or something, they're like, let's get into that. Let's get into that. Because that's a pretty cool story. So... So you decide, how did you decide to do your first art show at, at Shake Rag? So after I sold that very first piece yes. that I mentioned, and um, I did three more and somebody, whether it was family or somebody close to me, was like, you know, these are really interesting. These are different. I love the colors. Have you thought about Shake Rag Festival here in Peachtree City? And I was like, right. well, no, no, <laughs> like, I don't know how to do that. I, that's so intimidating. Um, I don't even know if I have a market. Like, I don't know what I'm selling. You know, people start saying, well, what kind of flowers are these? I'm like, I don't know. I think that's a tulip. Um, I think I wasn't trying to paint specific flowers. Right. So you I started, weren't giving it a name. No, I started calling they're whimsical. <laughs> right. Just use that yeah. one. Yeah. They're, it's whimsical art. That's, I did. I wasn't a folk artist. I wasn't impressionist. I wasn't, you know, I just, so I thought, well, I took some pieces in the car and there was someone I was connected with who kind of helps decide. And so I said, here, I literally propped him against a table. I was like, I don't have any pictures yet, like that I can send you because quote unquote, I wasn't an artist. Right. So I was like, this is, oh, I think those would be really fun at Shake Rag. And I said, okay. So a few months later. I'm at Shake Rag and I don't know what I'm doing. All I, I just started doing a bunch of art. I think, like you said, those downloads were just coming in fast. So my husband, we bought some wood, cut it into shapes. And I literally went, I mean, I I did research like, oh, I need a tent. Okay. Well, where do you get a tent? I don't own one. So I had to rent one for two days. Like I literally just I was like, okay, you I'm paid just cash for everything. That was big. You said, I, I don't want to go. I'm not putting any of this on a credit card. I not ever taken out a business loan. Um, I wasn't given a large chunk of cash. I think I opened the account. I mean, maybe with a hundred or $200. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I am not going to charge this business because we already had so much medical debt. And we still do. <laughs> That's just right. Life. Right. As far as this, I'm not going to do that. And my motto, because I know one of your questions was, what is a motto? And it's always been slow and steady wins the race. Like, I don't know how fast this is going to go. I don't know how slow this is going to go. I'm just going to continue and trust the process. Um, and so Shake Rag was totally trusting the process because, and people would come in and be like, oh, what kind of artist? I'm like, oh, I'm not really an artist. <laughs> oh my say. gosh. I would be like, oh, and they're like, well, yeah, you are. You paint art. I'm like, I mean, it was so unfamiliar because right. I just kind of felt like it came out of, well, I know it came out of an extremely difficult place, but it also came out of nowhere compared to doing ballet and growing up. This was not anything I ever did. I didn't do art. Right. You couldn't own it. It's the same reason why you started a closed Instagram group, but I did. So I didn't, you didn't own it and that's fine. And then it, it yeah. took that one lady in that parking lot who parked at Shake Rag and and looked and saw your painting the way you had this, the biggest one 
I centered, I centered it. Centered it and she saw it in the parking lot and went up and bought it. And that paid for everything that day. That one that paid for what it costs to um, be at Shake Rag. And so I definitely in that first event covered my expenses, maybe made a little bit more. But it was a start of just saying, hey, I'm here in the community. (laughs) I don't know where this is going. And and then, you know, the one, um, the Nest Fest came. The Nest Fest came. A Nest friend, Fest. You said a friend? Yes, that I had known in Knoxville from the time yeah. our babies. She was on Instagram and I was on the private Instagram. You know, it was still private. I had like 44 followers for months because I was just like, I can't do public. I can't make this public. Right. But she, she was on there and she said, Heather, you need, you need to p- submit your stuff to Nest Fest. And I was like, and so I looked it up what it was. I was like, oh no, oh no, no. This isn't another state. This, this person's an author who's hosting it. And wow. I was like, oh, you know, she said, just, just submit it. And I was like, okay. And I had told, I had a little thing with God that I was like, look, I don't know where this is all going, but I feel like you gave this to me. So if you open the door, mm-hmm. I'll walk through. I may not always be able to walk through every door depending on life. But if you, if you open the door, you keep showing me, you keep yeah, showing me and putting, the path, putting those yeah, flagstones down. I'll step on them. I will step on it. If you, if I know that you're, so I just know this is what I'm supposed to do. And then I'm in my lane and this is what you want me to do. So I got into the nest fest and I was like, so excited. But then I was like, Oh no, <laughs> I actually have to go there. I actually have to have the work. I have to set yes. up. I have things. And yes, there are things to do. And this is going to be pretty heavily attended. Um, there was more than one author there and it was super exciting. Um, I was reconnected with my old friend and, and met two other friends that I'm still friends with now because of that. And But I do remember I had painted these two big pieces that could be separated. It was one huge flower, but if you put them together, it was one big flower. If you separated them, it was two halves. Mm-hmm. It was the day before the event and they sold. And I said, well, can I just keep them up for display, but I'll, I'll write sold. So it was little, I think things like that, that were affirmations. They're of, boosts. Well, yeah. They're affirmations. Exactly. Yeah. Like maybe it's like little, it's like little crumbs on the path. Keep going, yeah. keep going. Yeah. So that definitely helped. And then, um, the next year, 2018, I, a local, Launching Go Workspace, um, just owned by an amazing, uh, Darren is his name. And I love what he does. Uh, he will have artists, different artists every few months, put their art on his wall. No charge. I saw, just- I saw it there and did not know our paths would ever connect. Yeah. So that was one of the first local places that he had messaged me. And at first I was like, I don't know a Darren. Who is this? Right. Because <laughs> my, you know, remember my Instagram was, I think after four months, I made it public um, very nervously and was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, but look what happened. No, I did. And so things like that just started kind of happening Um, Mm -hmm. out on Instagram messaging and, hey, can we interview you for this? Or would you be interested? And, And those little doors would kind of keep opening. And I was like, okay, but it stretched me every time every time it was different or new. And it's like, so constantly being stretched. Yeah. But that makes it so rewarding. And so I, and I said this to you when we started, I said, feel like 
you and your art, when I see you, I get this vision of like this fountain, like bubbling in the bottom. And then it just kind of comes up this, this long, narrow shoot. And then it just pours (laughs) out beautifully, but, but well poured out. Like it's just Mm -hmm. beautiful. And I really feel like that's you, that's you. Mm -hmm. Cause you got all that stuff stirring around down there. You got the health, you got the, of your child, the trauma of all of that, the losing the jobs, moving back and forth, the traveling like that. I know that's insane. Yeah. And then um, here you are and you're taking the leap of faith and your husband now makes porch swings with you. (laughs) You're designing other places. You're going in and painting on other people's walls. I know it's crazy. You're like in demand (laughs) now for your, for your art and your daughter's thriving. Yeah. She still gets her infusions every four weeks. So we are still in it. And you don't go to Connecticut anymore, correct? You're in Atlanta now. Yeah. We actually have um, home health care that comes in every month. Um, but she, that's a good story. I almost forgot the boxes. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. That was definitely, uh, wow. That was a moment where it was a very private moment. And, um, I just kind of started sobbing this one particular day. Um, her, her medical supplies are shipped the week of her infusion a few days ahead Uh and have to be refrigerated. It's a two day infusion intravenously. And so there's a lot of you know, syringes, a lot of, um, IV, IG bags, a lot of things that go with that. So we have to unload it. Um, and we have to refrigerate some of it. Okay. And then we have these boxes. And so one day I was like, well, so, and, and I have painted some birdhouses in the past and I realized this one box fit birdhouse perfectly. So I put it in the medical box and I'm wrapping it with the bubble and pouring peanuts and I kind of stared at it one day and uh, there's this scripture that I always loved because it kind of felt like kind of just, it just said, I will give you beauty for ashes. And I remember to me in our life, the ashes are the medical and just the the hard things that people don't see, people don't know the things that we, we may or may not share just the real hard and God knows what they are. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm shipping the art in her medical supply box. Like that's irony. not costing you anything to no, buying no. the box. <laughs> no, the irony of the irony. And so I just remember I started crying because not only providing a literal need at the moment of a box, <laughs> but just just the irony of it. Like who would have thought that through all the hard, um, I'd be shipping something that, that I feel like he gave the creativity and, and, and sending to somebody else that would hopefully bring them joy. Because the one thing I heard a lot at the festivals, I never heard like, oh, your art is, um, um, so, uh, it's not like, yeah, I mean, it's not that it couldn't be in a gallery, but it, it's. I just would always hear people say your art is so happy. It elicits art, joy. It elicits your, joy. Yeah. Your art makes me feel happy. And so I would hear that all the time. And I was like, my gosh, that's the best compliment. If this brings somebody else joy. And yeah, you don't have to sit there and examine your art to feel anything. It's yeah, already thank there. You, thank you. So I just was like, I don't know. So the box, the medical boxes that come every month, a lot of times are what I ship out the art. It's amazing. And it's just kind of, 
like, wow, okay, see, this is taking that hard stuff and watching something positive come out of the suffering. So tell me, Heather, if, if you were to say, what is the number one lesson you've learned with this, with this experience, your second wind, where you're at now? I have to say, you know, you hear it a lot. Age is only a number. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think the biggest lesson is in those hard times, in those dark moments, in those monotonous days where you think nothing is ever going to change. And maybe with what we're all going through, even COVID right now, we feel that way. Mm -hmm. I think what I learned is realizing you never know what is around the bend in the road waiting for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You never know. And so in those years where things felt so confining and isolating, if you had told me then just wait, because if you knew the amazing people you were going to meet and your an art community is there and you're going to be, I would have not believed you. And I think the biggest lesson is there's still more until we take our last breath. There is still more for us to do. And there's still more um, if we can just be patient. Yes. Preach. Exactly. (laughs) That is exactly it. And you're, and being willing to listen and be open and follow the signals, follow the, the breadcrumbs that are being placed there. Look at them. If you get these downloads, if something just pops, I was telling people at this conference, lots of women at this conference and they're like, so what is this? What are you doing? What did I go? You just got to listen. You know, they're asking the house, how do I move ahead? How do I do this? How do I know? How do I know to do this? Or how do I know to do that? It's like, listen, you're going to get the answer if you listen. And if it pops into your head, act on it. If a name pops into your head, call that person. If a random number shows up on your phone, like it did for me. And this person asked me if I was an insurance agent and we started talking and she's got this amazing second wind story just from a spoof call. Yeah. You just, I, and I looked at the number. I said, I should probably call that. And I did. And now look, like I'm just telling you, and you yeah. are an example of being open, letting it go. Let's see where this takes us. Deal with what you got to deal with. Right. Do the right. best you can and allow you, you allowed life and God and higher source to take you in this direction. How do people find you? Really important. Yes. So right now it's still Instagram. It's Picket Place Designs, but it's spelled P-I-C-K then I-T, like you pit. And that was kind of the, we have a picket fence at our house. It's where it began. And I just felt like the name you pick at Picket Place Designs, what color, what flower, what your part, you're actually partly an artist as well, because a lot of people pick the most amazing color combinations and I'm just painting the colors they want. Yeah, you'll like, do, you yeah. do that for people. Commissions. Yeah. yeah. And so that for now, um, we might expand later to a website. We might expand to Facebook at some point. I feel like those are. Oh, you will. Yeah. In the future. But right now I want to be present for my daughter's senior year. Yeah. And I want to be able to take a day off if I want to. And so I'm prioritizing and, and keeping it at Instagram because we're so busy on Instagram. So really it's been, it's been good. So that's where they can find us um, for now. And, you know, hopefully they'll stay with us. So oh, oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you're just, you're just beginning to turn the corner on this. Wow. I'm going to well, see you. this throughout the country, throughout the world. I'm just telling wow. you. So tell wow. me this, what's yeah. your mantra? And you gave us one, but what's the mantra you use every day that keeps you going 
Cause we all have those days, right? You're like, Oh, do I really have to do this today? Do I have to drive to my daughter's apartment to yeah. do this? <laughs> I think for me, it's really, I can get and like anybody, but I can get overwhelmed easy. There's school things. There's this, there's that there, you know, there's always some aging parents. There, there's just always something. And I have to center myself and just stop and say, just do the next thing that's in front of you. Oh, I like that. Maybe that's just the grocery store in the next hour. Maybe I think in my daughter's illness, we learned to take one hour at a time. One it's hour. All you, it's all you get anyway in that moment. And, and you only, and my daughter, if it was a horrible, horrible day, I would say, look, you never get the same day twice. So if it was the mm. best day of your life, enjoy every moment. If it's the worst day of your life, you're never going to get that day back either. So mm. really just doing what's in front of you next and just trying to keep it simple because, um, life is not simple. <laughs> so yeah, today, what was in front of me next was this podcast. And then when I get off there, I'll, I'll do the next thing that's in front of me. And I feel more accomplished doing it that way because I can look back and see what I did do and what I accomplished rather than the next, do this, I do that, you know? So I, I think just do I the next it. thing in front. I yeah. love so simple. It. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. And I am excited for the second wind tribe to find you and they'll talk to you and find her on Instagram. She answers. She's very supportive. It's all really, really good. And um, until next time, thank you, Heather. And breathe thank in. Thank you. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Oh, yes. And breathe in your second win. Bye, Wendy. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile, made you think, and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, go ahead and breathe in your second wind.